You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hello, this is Abraham. And your co-host, Ryan O. And so today we are going to start by telling a little bit of a story. Okay. Let's hear it. Ready for a story? Yeah. Okay. All right. So there was this case where a woman had died. And before she had died, um, she had um, had an altercation. She had a fight with her ex-boyfriend. And so naturally, he became a leading suspect. It seems you know, like that makes perfect sense that they had been in a relationship. They knew one another. They got in a fight and then she was found dead. Okay. And murdered nonetheless, not just, you know, dead. Um, and so as the leading suspect, he was offered, quote unquote, offered yeah. to take this polygraph lie detector test. And when he took it, he failed it, indicating that he was lying about what he was saying. Okay. Uh, however, in court, the remaining evidence uh, about whether or not he had been the one who had committed this crime was insufficient to convict him. But because of this incident with the polygraph, his friends and his family really just wanted nothing to do with him. They were, you know, they were angry at him. They believed that he had lied and sort of tricked the system, um, that he was, in fact, guilty. And what was interesting is later they found the actual killer and they had the evidence to convict him of the crime. But this guy, his life at that point had already been ruined. And it was because of this um, failed polygraph test and this particular situation. So it's rough. Yeah. Super rough. Not a great, not a great day for that guy. Although I'm sure this took place over the course of a year or two at least. Now we've already talked about lying in a previous episode. And one thing that we had brought up in that episode is how do you know when someone's lying? Like, is it that thing where you look up into the left or something that's supposed to be, (laughs) you're accessing the creative (laughs) part of your brain? Yeah. Is it something that we can measure? And spoiler alert, mostly we can't. Um, But this particular story about the polygraph is one experiment in an attempt to try and measure lying where and if it occurs. Okay, so as I already said, the polygraph is a quote unquote lie detector test. All right. And it's primarily predicated on this idea that when people lie, they experience emotional distress about their lying and that these emotions have physiological correlates with them. Correlates is a pretty key thing here. Yeah, exactly. So basically the idea is being that if I'm lying, then my heart rate's going to increase and I might sweat a little bit and I'm going to be nervous about the fact that I'm lying, maybe because I'm afraid of being caught or just because it's distressful for lying. Yeah, you also have elevated breathing that happens. Uh, yeah, and uh, blood pressure is supposed and to I, increase. I think the one that we can all relate to probably at some point is the increased heart rate as well. Yeah, I like mean... That's something you can really feel really easily. Sure. Now, as we mentioned, lying, uh, there's a lot of considerations around what that even is. Because if you're withholding the truth, is that lying? If you are misleading someone, is that lying? Um, is it possible that you know that you're lying, but it doesn't cause you any emotional distress because... Um, there could be a lot of reasons, self-preservation, or you feel you're doing something in the best interest of someone else, or there could be a lot of reasons that you might be lying. And well, let's go another route on this. What are some circumstances under which you might also have perspiration, elevated breathing, increased heart rate and increased blood pressure? Um, I mean, the one that I think of the most is like, what, what, what if you're wearing like a big heavy suit that day that you like yeah. set in to do this, right? Right. And the AC is broken. Like all of a sudden I'm going to be perspirating a lot. Now they like 
we'll get into it. They have some control measures. Yeah. But there's a lot do. of variables external to just the way that things typically set up. People and, might ha- have a similar experience when they're about to perform, if they're going to present something in front of a group of people. Yep. Speaking is one of them. If you have anything personal going on in your life, that like stress mm-hmm. can easily be triggered by just about anything, right? Totally. This um, could be a similar experience if you're really excited about something. Um, you just walked in and surprise birthday party. You know, your friends are there. Um, you know, a lot of this in- increased uh, arousal generally yeah. is what happened. And I know they're used a lot when we're talking about different jobs, right? Yeah. So in the context of a lot of government jobs, I guess, or not a lot, but in the context of some government jobs like the NSA, um, they are used there reportedly to the extent to which I don't know exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you're like super into this job that you're looking forward to, like I've been in that position where you're just like, emotions are everywhere right yeah when oh you're yeah in the actual interview high stakes you really want to get the job you are going to have this you know the sweating and you're breathing hard and all that sort of stuff yeah sometimes it's things you've prepared for for like half your life yeah and that's the day you know right so totally and uh one other one i always think is fun is that this can happen in the throes of passion you're with someone that you care about and <laughs> <laughs> might be experiencing some of this uh as well throes of passion yep <laughs> That's the way I'm putting it. Okay. All right. So how this machine actually works, they're mostly um, on computers anymore. They're software programs. It used to be this totally analog device that had all these needles that would like scribble back and forth on a piece of paper. But um, they still use the same kind of sensors. And what they are is there's this blood pressure cuff that just fits around the upper arm. Um, there's going to be, um, and that's going to check for both your pulse and your blood pressure. There are these, what are called galvanometers. Galvanometers. Yeah, we'll call them that. Galvanometers. And those go on your finger. That you wear or on your galvanometers. Finger. Galvanometers. I like that. I, that's would, I would bet it's that. <laughs> so they, they fit on your finger and they indirectly measure skin conductance as an indirect measure associated with perspiration on the fingers. It so goes on your first and third finger for y- some reason. Okay. Uh, hmm. I wonder why. Maybe it's, I'm not sure. That's what I, I found through some of my research. Huh. I didn't but know that. I don't okay. know if that's consistent. Yeah, that's okay. They also have this thing called a pneumonograph, and this is a little coil that fits around your chest, and it actually works a little bit like an accordion where as you breathe, it will open up the passage and then it will constrict the passage as your chest goes in and out. And what that does is this um, those compressions are then converted into electrical signals, and those are measured in terms of your rate of breathing. And so basically you can see all of these measures of your of the skin galvanation and your lungs and how quickly you're breathing. All of those things can have these small changes in them that might be difficult to detect if you were just looking at someone, but if you have the sensitive equipment, could uh, really powerfully detect those changes that are going on in on your body. And this is really measuring the activity of what's called the sympathetic or involuntary nervous system. Okay. So the parts where you, it's just your reaction to things, it's not things, something that you're deliberately controlling, although I suppose you could. And this is then based on the idea that the, those experiences that you have that we've already talked a lot about, Um, are based in fear, okay? And specifically, it is when you ask the relevant question of someone who is then going to be in a position to have to lie um, that uh, there is some fear of those questions that they're going to have to lie about. Yeah, it's a very big assumption there, right? Right. So in the case of the story we started with, if there was this guy who was a leading suspect in a murder case and they set him down and um, they're going to ask him, did you murder, I don't know what her name was, I want to call her 
Jessica. Okay. <laughs> Did you murder Jessica? Um, and that question in and of itself is supposed to create this fear that is then going to show this um, increased heart rate if he has to lie about it and, and blood pressure and all that. All right. So let's dive into exactly how this works. Yeah. So the process of how they go about actually implementing the quote unquote lie detection. So there's two types of questions, right? There's relevant and control questions. Um, yeah. Describe control questions first. What are those looking like? So the control questions are questions that you shouldn't have any reason to be concerned about. And the purpose of these is really to get a sort of baseline in terms of what your physiological arousal is like. So it'll be things like, is your name Ryan? And I would answer in strictly yes, no is what we found. Correct? Oh, yeah. Thank you for yeah. clarifying so, that. Yeah. So I would say no. Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. So is my name Ryan? Yes. Okay. And uh, do you live at, I don't know what your address is. Do you live in Reno? Yes. Okay. And so these are questions that are very simple. They're straightforward and that we can get, you know, because everybody's going to be at a slightly different level in terms of what their baseline blood pressure and heart rate and skin galvanization is. Um, that way that we can see where there start to be deviations from that if we are if the person who's administering this test is concerned that you're lying, then they're going to be specifically looking for those deviations. Okay, so that's our control questions. Now our relevant questions actually pertain to the issue at hand, right? Right. So there's some sort of event that happens when your story, um, the murder of Jessica, would be where the relevant questions are coming from, correct? Yeah, exactly. And so those are questions, they can, they're usually very straightforward. Did you murder her? Um, did you... Um, were you in the apartment at this time? That sort of thing. Um, and But these can also be, the questions that I just gave examples of are extremely specific. These are often, well, at least sometimes, I saw very broad. So the question might be something like, have you ever betrayed someone who trusted you at any point in your life? Yeah, I saw that as well. Yeah. And so that's a question where you might have to say yes. I saw some also like um, they, they put in a time frame. So like, have you ever stole anything after the age of 25? Oh, okay. You know? Interesting. Um, yeah. So it still could be pretty general. And then what do you mean by stole? I've stolen people's time. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Stolen people's hearts. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. um, okay, me. so... So yeah, so we have the relevant questions, um, and they compare these relevant to the control questions across all those different measures, Right, is my understanding. Yep. So we have, what else I kind of found was it's roughly five to six minutes long on average, although there's these like horror stories of them lasting forever and ever and ever. So they're kind of short But the majority of people that experience them up front for like the NSA or something like that report like that they hear all these things about how horrible they are, but they go through and they're just like, oh, it was really quick, it was easy, it was really short. I've heard that on average there's a few different three to six charts, it sounds like, that are that are looked at, um, and they do not give the final results while you're in the office, although most can seem to agree that if that the easiest way to detect if you may have not passed is if they start asking more questions in the moment, you know, uh, like... Oh, the person who's administering it is yeah, asking more questions? Yeah. Oh, The yikes. calligrapher might start asking more questions on a certain topic, and that might be a consistent way to identify if you may have not um, passed one of those questions. You know, I didn't actually think about the idea that the person who's administering a polygraph would be called a polygrapher. Yeah. That's funny. Um, on top of that, they also have yes, no as their answers. It looks like it's really strict yes, no's. Okay. Um, so I, did I you find it's supposed to be a control as well on this? It would make sense. You try to like limit those things, but I don't know. 
Yeah, I didn't actually find why they would be yes, no questions. Um, I was wondering if maybe it is that it's the immediate response and they're trying to look for like, what are the changes right when that response occurs? That And so if they try, if they launch into this big long story, then it might be really d- difficult to detect whether or not there is uh, deception in there. Yeah, and we get into this, uh, they talk about sometimes it's more of an art or there's a bit of an art. So I wonder if yeah. that's intersecting here, but we'll get to that in a bit. That's always a sort of a red flag to me. Yeah. So to kind of get back to it, they give the final, they don't give the final results in the moment. Um, they like to give it to someone I heard with a quote, unbiased eye. Okay. I don't really know what an unbiased eye is. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, what what does that mean? So presumably they have to give it to someone who has read a polygraph before, but maybe just someone who wasn't present during that particular polygraph test, you think? Yeah, it okay. sounds like it. Okay. Um, so I kind of like the control of that, but yeah, you know, like the that process, but still like an unbiased eye. Yeah. I'd, are we all really unbiased at the end of the day? I mean, <laughs> we'd argue, argue no. So you're saying that basically a lot of people have a lot of different biases, and we may or may not know that they're there. Yeah, I mean, we we really don't know that. There is some research on those sort of things. Yeah. And there's still a lot to be done in that area. Yes, there is. Um, so. Sometimes it sounds like they give an opportunity to resolve an issue if it comes up. So if there's some sort of weird spike or something, they'll ask a little bit more. Now, this is where it gets a little wishy-washy. Like when I was looking around the Internet, you find those old websites that just aren't like really up to date and they're clearly biased Mm -hmm. towards something. Um, So a lot of people scream like this is where interrogation happens. I don't know the extent to which interrogation happens in these, you know, and it's like those movie scenes where you like slide up and you're like, it's all super intense and they're in there for hours and they're asking all these questions about, you know, like in a very interrogative way. Right. Um, that actually raises the point that I didn't bring up before, which is that the, where this is primarily used is has to do with crimes of some nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and there might be used also, um, there are some other places where it has been used in the past, but is not used any longer. I'll get to, um, but for the most part, this has been used when um, people, someone is presumed to have done something wrong. They are suspected of some wrongdoing or committing some crime or some terrorist act. So it could actually be used for people who are being held for interrogation for um, really serious offenses. And it could be used for people who, um, for which they're sort of minor defenses or for even something that's not an offense at all, which I'll get to in just a little bit. Yeah. So the, so I've heard that, that sometimes they do a practice test to help people get used to the test. Um, Interesting. I don't know. Again, like this is that stuff where it's like, it's hearsay. Like I'm pulling these off of websites. I'm seeing it consistent across websites and videos. Um, um, videos both kind of like produced by larger organizations that seem pretty solid on as well as like those weird little clips of someone clearly just like has it out for <laughs> this uh, a polygrapher or something like that that's yeah. going on um but that's kind so of interesting that they would have the opportunity to practice because it seems like that would potentially lead to more sort of false positives detecting lies where there aren't actually lies yeah. or getting people maybe ready for where they are so ready to take the test that they're going to be better at lying and able to trick it later down the road. I don't know. That just seems like yeah. well, maybe they're maybe the practice test is specifically to throw them off so that it's easier to detect it. I don't know. That's, yeah. that's a that's an interesting. And that's it. Like there's there's all those questions that come up. Yeah. Antipolygraph.org was one of the areas where they were talking about this, but strictly in a forum. 
um, and they're linking to some things, but it's not like research like we like on the show. So, yeah, um, yeah okay. they essentially uh, then start asking questions, looking for sudden changes in the measures that are supposedly indicative of falsehood. Now, there were some assumptions that I ran into, and these are just kind of like, it seems people are assuming these things consistently Yeah. in this setting. First, they assume that their baseline is accurate and those measures are accurate. Right. Um, and one thing that kind of popped up here was one person said like, oh, it takes more energy to lie through a, through brain scan research. We know this. And that reminds me of this idea. Um, if you, in the show, um, the U.S. version of The Office, um, Dwight goes to do a polygraph or a lie detector test on Jim, but he doesn't actually have a polygraph. So what he does is takes him down to a pharmacy and puts his arm in a blood pressure cuff and starts asking him these questions. And <laughs> at the end, he said... Um, you know, his blood pressure was high the entire time. And so he's like, he lied about everything, even his name. So <laughs> he, was bas- he didn't have a baseline comparison, but it was funny that because he had seen increased blood pressure, um, during that, that, uh, in that particular instance, someone who was a polygrapher would have assumed that that baseline was, um, uh, was accurate. And so it, that makes me wonder about people who already have like sort of heavy breathing and high blood pressure. If they, if their baseline is going to be so high that detections, um, and increases of that would actually be a little bit difficult to measure because um, it'd be so high in the first place. Yeah, and the fact that they're kind of like this one gentleman was like resting on the brain scan research mm-hmm. as to like why um, some of these assumptions are okay made me a little bit nervous, especially after what we did on looking at the evidence of those sort of things. I think in like episode six or so when we kind of dove in the fMRI and such. Well, there was a whole book um, called the... Um it was called brainwashed the seductive appeal of mindless neuroscience. And there was a significant portion of that book was dedicated to the problems with trying to use brain scans to do like lie detection sort of stuff because, and based on the conclusions of that book, they were arguing that we as a society and um, in the science community are nowhere near where the research needs to be in order for this to be a potentially viable situation, like even less accurate than just measuring physiological responses because lying is not just one place in the brain where things happen. Um, it's very complicated. And as you said, it, it depends on sort of your relationship with the lie and whether or not you're sort of trying to hide the truth. And there's a lot of things that uh, go into when a lie takes place, but it's a really good book. I'd recommend checking it out. The brainwashed i believe the authors are sally satal and uh, scott o lillianfeld okay cool yeah i've not read that sounds very interesting and relevant it's it's actually a really interesting book to read and because they did so much on this whole idea of using brain scans to do like lie detection stuff and how difficult those are to use um, and how unreliable they are really it's uh, i think it's a good source for people who are interested in exploring this issue a little bit more cool all right so another thing i found is there's some folks that were saying that there's kind of this correlation of the bigger the issue, the bigger the lie, the bigger the reaction is how it works. So this is one of those assumptions? Yeah. And I don't know if we can assume that, especially since there's some evidence of pe- people being able to kind of get around these sort of uh, tests when they right. have committed the crime or at least have been proved guilty through other means, such as like DNA and such. So presumably in this one, the the implication is that people who are lying about something really important are very likely to be caught in that lie. Mm-hmm. People who are lying something about maybe something not so important are maybe less likely to be caught. But I think that the evidence is not 
necessarily in support of that. Yeah, and that's something we should be able to start to throw some numbers at, I guess. We don't need to be using these words like bigger. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes. Um, although it was, I, I guess, I mean, if they're using that for the sake of just kind of this PSA around it, then maybe that's why they did that. But yeah, um, I would expect some numbers at some point. So in addition to those, there's something. So one, one gentleman, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, said sometimes it's something that they have to look at closer. Like if someone answers one of those relevant questions in a little bit of a funny way and they see a spike on any of these measures. Um, and sometimes it's super clear. Now, that's where it was followed with these things are based in science, but sometimes there's an art that goes into it. Right. And that always raises red flags for me. Um, and they go on to indicate like that the questions and the order matter. They don't hmm. know how they matter. Who'd, um, who'd have thought? Yeah. Um, but this, there's a lot of people who looked into this. One that I hold on to tightly was a, a guy named Gold Diamond that essentially was just looking at surveys, the order in which you ask things. And he showed that you can stack it up to show an effect um, yeah. if you want to show an effect, or you can order them around and show that there's no effect. Yeah. So um, basically that you can sort of get the outcome you want if you order the questions in a certain way. Yep. Yeah. And his was survey work. So I will say it was different than the, the type of work that they're doing here. Um, but the fact that we have seen that consistently applied in one domain means that we should definitely look at it in here, especially if the main people that are doing these sort of things um, kind of have this gut reaction of like, this stuff matters. Probably yeah. does. Yeah. I think that even if it's a little bit different, they are similar enough and it's, it's at least worth being aware of, you know, that that yeah. could be a thing. And it's similar enough in that you are uh, trying to get information from somebody. I think that that sort of context is similar such that it's worth um, that it just needs to be considered uh, that how that order might play a part and use some of the research and related fields to guide the work on that. Now, the last area of kind of assumptions that I found was that the so there's various different countermeasures that people can do and they can it sounds like they they know what these are right i mean i would expect they can kind of predict some of these but they can also identify some of them through the spikes that they produce mm -hmm. so different countermeasures that have been used apparently are counting numbers backwards in your head can help counter something when you're lying okay um it sounds like so it's like you're concentrating on something else so you are not so distracted by the the lie or the question that's relevant. Yeah. Now, another one, squeezing of the buttocks, apparently, will produce an effect. Um, placing your toes, your feet more heavily into the ground can do that, as produce some sort of effect. Holding your breath, altering your breath pattern, biting lips and gums can help to deceive, I guess, as well, and cause different blips in the graph. And they say it's difficult to do these things effectively. Okay. But I would say it's not impossible. Yeah. Right. Um, and well, it seems that this is something totally under the realm of uh, this area of human behavior that we like to talk about that could be um, controlled for. Right. Yeah. Or learned or practiced and adapted upon and you could get better at. Well, it. it makes me think about the this idea of the going back to the idea of the control questions and how some of these other mental and physical I guess events might take place thinking about even if you ask someone some, something simple like is your name X and then uh, maybe you have a reaction to that because you share the same name with um, your your father or your mother or something and um, that you have a strained relationship with them and so like immediately there's some anxiety produced because you're thinking yes, that's my name. I hate my name that sort of thing. Um, but uh, immediately there's this, you know, um, 
physical reaction so that your baseline level is so high because you have all these reactions to what are supposed to be control questions that then again, going back to that idea of someone who comes in already having high blood pressure, um, that the changes that might occur relative to those control questions might be so small that they'd be missed and just undetected. And, um, you know, I guess someone could also do that intentionally, you know, try and make themselves think of something that causes that during those baseline, uh, control questions. Although I think they try and sort of pepper them in. So it's like control and relevant questions a little bit that I'm not sure about in terms of the process, but I I think that's how it's supposed to work. That's what I've found as well. Okay, great. Um, and so, yeah, just all of these things could either be strategies or something that someone does on accident. You know, you might sit, be sitting there and um, just be in the situation where someone's asking you these questions. Maybe you're a fidgety person and you put your toes on the ground and you kind of put yourself on the edge of your chair. Or, you know, they might even advise you to, to try and sit comfortably, but you still have some of these immediate reactions to the particular situation of being interrogated with a, you know, a bunch of stuff hooked up to your body. Exactly. And that's what I want to bring up. That they are assuming that these things are being done because someone is lying. Right. And we can't assume that, I think. Yes. Um, so a good example and way for us to kind of transition, I think, would be there is a particular National Geographic YouTube video called Beating a Lie Detector Test. I didn't know that. Um, it was obviously part of this larger series and they were just kind of doing more of this kind of like PSA on like, you know, like they do, like helping people help. They're, they're creating content to help people learn more about things that are happening in the world. Right. Right. So I'm not dogging on them per se. Um, they, they essentially set up to where, um, one of the guys, the host is, he's presumably dropped a game console. So he's brought in um, to... Dro- you mean like physically dropped it and Dropped broke a it? game console, okay. broke it, and um, they're going to bring him in for a poly- polygraph test. And he needs, to, <laughs> okay. he needs to try to counter it and see if he can like pass it. So he did a couple things. Um, he tried putting a pin in his shoe uh, so that he could step on it and increase st- stress prior um, to all this happening, like during his control questions. Oh, it's related to what I said earlier. Yes. And then he tried putting antiperspirant on his fingers... Now, apparently, the antiperspirant increases conductivity. <laughs> um, I don't know the extent to which it does. And the pin in issue created a different type of spike they reported. Okay. So, obviously, I guess if you're, there's a couple angles on this. If, like, if you're looking at this as like evidence, it's not. And they are, I think, would say, yes, this is not evidence for, you know, it's not research that they're doing here. Right. Um, at all. Just sort of a demonstration. Yeah. And we can't look at those sort of things. Um, so but it was also co- just completely fabricated, you know? Right. Like, I can't, there's, there's so many errors in this that about all it is is this kind of PSA sort of thing. So, was he able to pass the? Light detector? No, he did not pass the light detector test oh, okay. um, because they identified um, apparently different types of spikes during that. But for me, like them fabricating the lie in the first place makes it something hard to even look at the results. Right. That's you not know? a not a super well controlled experiment. Um, so what are some of the different data or research articles or evidence that you found looking at this? Yeah. So those who are really for the polygraph test, so they're in favor of it, they promote it. These tend to be the people who do the work. They are polygraphers, um, but there are others as well in law enforcement and whatnot. And, but those who do it, they seem to really believe in it completely. They really have a lot of faith um, or a lot of um, uh, faith is the right word. Let's just say faith. They, uh, they, have a, uh, they firmly believe in this process as being effective. Uh, they even started their own journal called Polygraph, which is appropriately named and they claim 95% accuracy 
and I'm just looking at that number thinking, oh my God, like law enforcement's job is over. Uh, you know, they, they don't have to worry about this anymore because uh, they've got this amazing tool that's 95% accurate. And correct me if I'm wrong, it's still not a, like allowed in a court of law, right? Anywhere? In some of them. Yeah, I'm going to get to that in just okay. a moment. Yeah. Um, there, there are some that do still allow that. Really? Yeah. Okay. But they're, uh, they, do, they do also claim that there is a nearly 100% chance of being cleared if you're telling the truth and a 95% chance of being detected if you're telling a lie. So those are fabulous numbers. Yeah. You, if that was accurate, then I think that this, should, you know, this could be used in basically every setting that for which it's reasonable to try and, and do some kind of lie detection. Now, those who are not for the polygraph are not just out there being naysayers like we just wanted to pick something to fight against and this is the thing that we landed on uh, but these are people who also work in law enforcement and people who are scientists and psych- psychologists and one of the things that they say against the polygraph is that the polygraph doesn't actually identify whether or not you're telling the truth or more importantly what the truth is it will only tell you if you're lying um, assuming that it's accurate in that so though they might ask them um, if you have ever been to this one particular location um, and they say uh, no or they say yes I don't know whatever it is and it turns out to be a lie well that just tells you you know a little bit more information about that it doesn't tell you all, any specific details right or you know where a particular event take, took place if it took place here no did it take place here no did it take place here no anyone you know um, if any of those were true for example then uh, we don't necessarily know where it, it did take place so it's it's difficult and that all it really does is reveal whether or not there is a lie, assuming that it's accurate in doing that. Another one, and this is important because this goes to the major underlying premise of the polygraph is that medical science has never found any measurable emotional response that could reliably be linked to lying. There, there just isn't one. So this idea that if you have elevated blood pressure or increased skin conductance of perspiration or any of those other measures that they are employing, that that means that someone is lying. There are lots of circumstances where we have those emotional responses and we can't necessarily link them to lying, even in this context in the medical science. Okay. And as a sort of thought experiment, this is something a little bit different. What is the lowest possible rate of accuracy on this? Because this is a yes/no measure, right? So they could either get a, it's a true or false a dichotomous. So it's it's one or the other. So what is the lowest possible accuracy that one could have on a polygraph or on anything that is a a yes/no sort of measure? Fifty percent. Yeah, because if it was lower than that, if it was reliably like. 1%, then it would be so wildly inaccurate that you could actually use that to just flip it and say that that was, you know, it was accurate in the opposite direction. Yep. So like this one is, you know, 100% almost always, always detected that it was the truth when it was a lie. Then we look at that and say, okay, well now we just know that that means that when we see this thing that is 100% the truth, that means that they're lying because it's always that way. It's reliable. So you're setting this up perfectly. What's the research say? <laughs> so when people have done some of the really good controlled studies on this, they found about 60 7% accuracy for the polygraph um, when detecting the lie. 
but what they did then is they continued to explore that. This was initially, right? So the polygraph came out. There's obviously a lot of people who had a lot of interest in really determining just how accurate this was. And so just out of curiosity, we followed the scientific process and discovered 67% accuracy. That's not great. A little lower than 95%, but it's still better than half. Okay. Yeah. And so then when the, they continued to do more research, they got better controls. They got more clever in how they arranged those variables. So it was really detecting whether or not it was accurate, got it down to 52% accuracy. This is literally as inaccurate as it could possibly be without it actually being informative in the opposite direction. Right. So that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, then at this point, it's a toss of a coin. You know, you could, if someone was lying or telling the truth, you could flip a coin and it would be as accurate as this test is um, if you got, you know, heads or tails. Yeah, <laughs> and there was, that way. one of the videos that I was sampling from was a guy who reportedly worked um, within some government agency and then transferred out across 20, 30 years. It sounds like he worked there for 20-ish years. Mm -hmm. And this thing was he was starting to teach people and show that you can actually beat these sort of things. Yeah. a lot of problems. He was actually being sentenced. I don't know where that ended up at. Yeah, um, there, there was a guy of, who went to prison for um, teaching people how to pass. It might be the same guy. That, sounds like it. Um, yeah. But his his thing, he was a little bold about it. It was just, you know, you, you, you grab a quarter and you flip it, heads, you're telling the truth, uh, tails, you're lying. <laughs> and that's how he opened it and just saying, like, that's where the research is at. Um, so, yeah, I definitely saw that as well. Uh, the, uh, so another argument that those who are against the polygraph use is that um, when someone who is, is a polygrapher who is administering this test, the more knowledge they have about the circumstances for the case, the better they are at um, conducting and evaluating the polygraph. But that's actually kind of true of anyone who would be doing any type of t interrogation. So any cop who knows a lot about the case, who knows a lot about the information, can go in and just have a regular conversation with someone and be about as good at... Um, you know, arranging it so that they tell the truth or that they get more details or that they're able to sort of detect when they're uh, lying a little bit. And that just comes from general training um, and how to do sort of good police work and good detec uh, detective work, I guess. And another argument against, there are quite a few of them, is this fact that when you're engaging in deception, this is a verbal and cognitive task, okay? Um, but there is no direct measure of these sort of verbal cognitive tasks where it's just your own sort of self-expression. And so when you're trying to measure something like someone's physiology, that is not a measure of those those cognitive processes, that sort of um, language uh, element of this, right? And the language itself doesn't necessarily help because that's what you're trying to detect. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, it's sort of a mismatch between what your measurement system is and the thing that you're actually trying to measure, okay? Now... This one is, um, I'm not sure how much I agree with this as its own, but another one that they, they cite is that there's not very much training required to administer a polygraph. I saw, I think it was like six weeks maybe I of polygraph that, testing. I saw one that said 14 weeks. Okay. Um, so it's probably a range depending on where you're at. And I didn't dive into it. And we know from learning, right, that there's uh, so many multitudes of, or different variables that go into learning quickly or not and right. all that that. Um, I'm not gonna, yeah, like we wouldn't slam necessarily on the length of time. Yeah. It's, you know, for say it's, are you being trained to competency in these sort of things? And that was exactly my thought on this, um, was this fact that, you know, if, if you have a really, really well structured curriculum around this, um, then you might be able to more effectively teach someone how to use this in one day than someone who has really poor curriculum can in six months. And so the length of time doesn't tell me a lot about it. It really would be whether or not they demonstrate some level, as you said, of, of competency with this. 
Um, and the last one is uh, is the story. Um, there was apparently the spy. Uh, he was an international spy, and he was able to pass five polygraphs. Like that seems like a lot to me. Um, but he passed all five of them about his activities as a spy. And this is also interesting because this goes back to this idea that we had discussed previously about sort of the bigger the lie, the bigger the circumstances, the bigger the event. Well, this is a guy lying about essentially like international espionage and potentially terrorism and weapons and all that sort of thing. So these were in what I would think to be really big lies, um, but he was able to pass all five of them. And then he would, he described just how easy it was that it was, you know, very low effort for him. And he specifically, after he was caught later with actual evidence and circumstances, he said polygraph tests are quote, junk science, a superstition and a refuge from responsibility. So <laughs> strong words, very strong words. Yeah. Um, but you know, he, he's kind of, it's coming straight from the horse's mouth in this case, because He's the one who knows how they work enough that he can beat them with ease and did it multiple times. Five times. That's so many. Okay. A few more considerations. There's some other considerations about uh, using the polygraph test as a lie detection system and whether or not that is a reliable way of detecting lies. And one of those is that when you're in these sort of high intensity contexts and situations where you are being scrutinized and questioned and interrogated by some authority figure in a you know dark room or some uncomfortable place, and it's about these extremely sensitive topics that's enough to put anyone on edge and on high alert. You know, this implies that there's likely to be sort of a high number of false positives because people are just reacting to things in general. And if you're already anticipating one of those relevant questions, whether or not it's something that you are going to be lying about, like these are, it's really sensitive. So if I were to just ask you just sitting here, did you kill Jessica? Obviously you didn't, but like in an interrogation setting, that might, might be enough to set you off because it's like, whoa, like that's a really intense question to be asked. Yeah. And, um, and so the experience that you have just in being in that context is likely to have the kind of arousal that might lead to the detection of a lie where one didn't actually occur. Surveys have shown that many, many people in sort of the lay public really believe that this is a legitimate way of testing for and detecting falsehoods and people who are relying in these circumstances and for law enforcement. Yeah. I mean, it seems, uh, it seems likely that if you, you know, start to get some more direct measures around something, right. um, especially if you don't have a lot of experience looking at the, the, the likelihood that those actually really measure what we think they're measuring it looks like it's a lot better of a measurement system right right and so yeah one of the, i completely agree i was looking at this thinking it kind of makes sense when you had absolutely nothing before for someone to come in and say wait let's let's look at some objective measures we can directly measure things like your breathing and your blood pressure and your heart rate and so um, all they had to do was then make a huge leap in assumptions to, <laughs> that those things were uh in, indicative of lies now they're they're great uh, equipment maybe for medical testing, um, but maybe not so much for lies. But yeah, a lot of people really believe in them and they, they do overcome that obstacle of really um, subjective interpretation to more objective measures. The problem is those objective measures aren't measuring lies. Um, another consideration in here, and this goes back to that guy, is that a single failure of a lie detection test, even of the smallest thing, well, maybe not the smallest, but you know, of something that's even a little bit re relevant for someone um, is can, can completely ruin someone's life. And it's 
really this catch-22 because if you refuse to take the test, then it looks like you're guilty. So imagine you're in this situation where uh, there's a high probability. You go into a, you know, a place where you have to get a lie detection test. There's a, you already know from the research that there's a high probability that there's going to be a false positive and you're going to be detect. Uh, it's going to be assumed that you're um, lying even when you're not especially because it's those high intensity circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so you might want to refuse, but then you know if you refuse, that looks like an admission of guilt. So then you take the test, but then it pegs you as being a liar anyway because those false positives, that sucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're so stuck in that situation. What do you do? And there's a lot of uh, problems around this with employment screening. This is no longer allowed at all to be used in employment screening. Um, and actually, the law specifically states not only can they not use a polygraph when they're hiring people, but they cannot go back and look at an old polygraph that they may have taken in the hiring process because they might be just looking for whether or not they're lying or telling the truth. And there's so many problems with this that it, you just can't use it. Um, it's there's a lot of false positives. It's not reliable. And um, it's it's kind of an invasion of someone's privacy as well. And um, they also might end up learning information that isn't relevant to their performance at work that is very personal to that person. It'd almost be like looking at their medical records before you hire someone. That's also you know not something you can do Yeah. because that's personal information. Um, but what's interesting about that is that you can still use a polygraph test for security positions even for the FBI, CIA, and NSA, which is weird because it's the government who put that restriction in place in the first place. So, I don't know. Now, yeah, there's a degree to which they're still believed to be effective, right? Yeah. Or worthwhile in those processes. Yeah. It's cool. I'm not in those. I respect it at this level, you know? Sure. I, I get it. Maybe we'll see someday if I'm ever working there. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> fair. I can't see that happening, but it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now, one thing that's interesting that's a consideration around the use of the polygraph is that as many as 25 to 50% of people who are actually guilty and go in for a polygraph test may still confess their guilt because of the circumstance where they believe in the polygraph, where they um, they feel like it's they're going to be found out anyway. And so... I wonder if that's why it's still used. That, that could be. But the question that I ask is like, okay, so is it worth it to have up to 75% of people, you know, because we're talking about 20, 25, 50. So yeah. between 75 and 50% of people who might be innocent, be imprisoned or possibly sentenced to death based on this technology, you know, is it okay if out of a hundred people, 50 of them admitted their guilt, 50 of them didn't, but all 100 of them were killed um, because 50 of them were innocent, you know, um, like, is that okay? I think no, I, I would have a really hard time being okay with as like, if I were someone who was, put on death row for something I didn't do because I failed a polygraph test because the technology is not that good. Yeah. And then later they're like, whoops, sorry about that. Yeah. I would say, I would say no upfront as well. Um, I would love to be able to see a lot more of a history and the data on these sort of things. Like I can't imagine what, you know, entities like FBI, CIA, NSA have um, when it comes to data on this, everything's been recorded. Like, yeah. That's like every polygraph is supposed to be recorded. Right. Right. Very true. I mean, the amount of just information data that you could actually look at, maybe there's other things back there to learn. And I'd like to learn those yeah. someday. Yeah, <laughs> sure. All right. So as we had mentioned previously, um, it's inadmissible in most courts and most states in the country. There are 19 states that still use polygraphs, including Nevada, where we're at. Interesting. Um, but in four of those states, both parties on both the um, defense and the prosecution must agree to take the polygraph test. Um, so 
you know, you might put that down to 15 because there's probably going to be a lot of people who say no. But, you know, between, we'll say 15 and 19 states, it is admissible in court. But uh, there are 19 states where it is still admissible. Okay. And then the last thing I had on this in terms of considerations about about the polygraph is that there are ways of sort of hiding the truth without necessarily telling a lie. And we talked about that, I think, in the truth and lie episodes that we did. But it's just worth considering you can be really vague and not necessarily be telling a lie. Yeah, just like you can ask really vague questions and get these convoluted answers, right? right? <laughs> because although they're supposed to say yes, no questions, they might say like, well, no, not really, but kind of. <laughs> or, you know, and then they'll ask probing questions and it just gets them off on this sort of tangent where they're on irrelevant things that it's really easy to tell the truth about, something like that. All right, so let's wrap up some take-homes here. Okay, so as we sort of said, this tool, this polygraph test is less useful than just guessing with a little bit of evidence. I mean, if someone had some of the circumstances, they would be better at detecting um, the the real information and getting information from someone in an interrogation than um, than trying to use a polygraph test. Yeah, and even worse, you mentioned this in a, you know, a few different ways, but it can straight up just ruin somebody's life. Right, yeah, someone who's innocent, if they fail a polygraph test, this can be com- completely damning to the rest of their life because of the stigma and how many people believe in this. And so where does that leave you, Abraham? (laughs) My opinion about this, and I feel like I have, I've tried to not be too strong about this throughout, but I think, you know, having done the research on this and, and understanding this topic pretty well, I really think that this is technology that just has to be abandoned. I, I think it's, it's too dangerous in terms of getting things wrong and ruining people's lives. And I think that it's, it's at best kind of a waste of time that occasionally scares people into admitting their guilt. I mean, that's a best case scenario. That's not, I think a great, um, method. Yeah. It's yeah. That's not a great outcome for it either. And at the worst, it can destroy the lives of innocent people. And I mean, quite literally for those who are put to death for crimes they didn't commit and it can, and it can do this on a pretty massive scale because every, you know, life that affects, there's a, a network of people whose lives it will also affect. I would agree with you on that up front. And then I'd just say like, if there's a way that we could safely and like actually research this more mm-hmm. to figure out what it is, or maybe study those archives of, you know, somewhere like the FBI, like if they ever release all that information someday. That would be cool. Like, I agree. It would be cool to like relook at this and understand it more from the scientific perspective, the ethical side. I agree with you there. And I mean, there is sort of a bigger conversation here to have about that. We're not going to try and incorporate into this discussion, but this, the fact that a lot of people get really satisfied with just identifying guilt. You know, this, oh, we figured out that you were lying. <sighs> okay, we can all go to bed now. And not so much of the asking the question, why did this happen and how can we stop it from ever happening again? It's not necessarily as important about telling whether or not they lied, although there might be really important information to get out of that person. And I don't want to discount how critical that can be. But it's, I think it can be one of those stopgap measures where people get so satisfied with having detected the truth that they are no longer interested in what caused the problem in the first place. And if we can figure out if there's a systemic issue that is causing these types of crimes and problems, like let's get rid of that. And then if there's still problems, then we can go at this other way. But you know, I think the prevention angle is is sort of where I land on that. I love it. Cool. All right. Well, I got nothing else. That's it. So thanks for tuning in. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one. If there's anything different about this episode you noticed, it's I think our first morning one. Yeah. Um, so I guess maybe we'll see if we're as chipper or more chipper. Um, if you have anything for us, make sure to reach out on those different channels. And I think that's it. So this is Ryan O. This is Abraham. We are out.
listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by ABAI's Disseminating Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group and our amazing listeners. If you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Anything helps, and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brussier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Yeah.